My guest this week has worked and created content for such companies as AOL, Nick at Night, TV Land, Joan Rivers, and Martha Stewart. He also worked for the Financial News Network, Broadway Video, and was a page for NBC during the first two years of Saturday Night Live. I'm excited to talk to Ed Barrenhouse. Hi, Ian. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So, what, what was your earliest television memory? Well, there are sort of two series of memories, some in black and white and then in color. Um, probably the earliest influences I can remember are The Jack Benny Show and Burns and Allen. Somehow they were part of the, uh, the daily uh, uh, syndicated shows of the day. And of course, I Love Lucy. I was always drawn to comedy in those early days. Uh, as I became a little older, I got involved with uh, the kid shows of the day. Um, here in New York, there was uh, Sonny Fox, who started a show called Wonderama, and another show called Just for Fun. He was sort of a Cary Grant-type figure, very dashing. And the, the great thing about Sonny was that he would treat the children with respect, not talking down to them, but to them and gave them the sense that they were important and belong. And I think that stuck with me through my, the rest of my life. On the comedy front, I would say that the, the two major influences were Chuck McCann and Soupy Sales. Chuck McCann worked with WPIX Channel 11 in New York. And basically, he would do an unscripted show of improv for about two hours uh, every afternoon. And among the things that he would do is impersonate the comic strip characters uh, of the Daily News, people like Little Orphan Annie and Dick Tracy. And he was just a riot. Um, and then Soupy Sales, who's better known around the country. Of course, he had a show in Los Angeles and then later in New York and then a nationwide show, I believe, on ABC. Uh, and his show was really geared to both adults and children. Whereas the uh, the other shows were more focused on kids, his humor could be translated two separate ways, one by adults and one by kids. Um, the other influences were people like Jay Ward, who produced Rocky and His Friends. The, the, the comedy of that show was also multi-level, the sarcasm and, and the inside jokes that adults would get, plus the pure entertainment. Of, of the children's comedy that would go along with it. So there was a lot growing up there. Now, finally, there was not so much comedy influences, but the early Laurel and Hardy movies, the, Gra the, the Marx Brothers movies, um, Abbott and Costello, uh, they were all very much part of my, my comedy education as a kid. So it's always been part of my DNA, if you will. I read that you saw the Beatles at Chase Stadium. That is correct. And uh, just uh, the anniversary of, of the show was just recently. We're recording this in August, August 23rd, 1966. Um, a seminal event in my life. I can still remember it all these years later, 57 years later. Uh, I went to uh, Shea Stadium with my big brother, Ira. It was a big deal for me. It was my first major concert. And uh, my dad had worked for the Daily News and he managed to score tickets uh, to the press box. Now the press box had uh, glass enclosures so that the broadcast announcers would have quiet and they would pipe the information about the uh, various uh, players in Shea Stadium, which was still a very new facility. It was opened in 1964 for the Mets. Um, they uh, they would broadcast through these speakers in the, the booth so that they knew who was coming up next. And in those days, in those early touring days, the Beatles were using the sound systems of the various stadiums. Now, if you were in the regular audience, you couldn't really hear the Beatles. You would hear lots of screaming, gales of nonstop screaming. Uh, but... In the announcer's booths, you can actually hear them through those speakers. So I consider myself one of the lucky people who actually heard the Beatles during that concert. It wasn't a long concert. It was only 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Um, 
among the opening acts were the Shirelles, one of the Beatles' favorites, uh, The Circle, who did a song called Red Rubber Ball, written by Paul Simon. Um, and Ed Sullivan came out and introduced the Beatles. But it was seared into my DNA. I'm a lifelong Beatle fan, still to this day. My uh, father was at the concert. He saw them. He didn't hear them. Yeah, exactly. So I was one of the lucky ones. It was quite a show. I know there are uh, videos and recordings of various Beatles shows uh, that you can find. Uh, usually they're in bootlegs. Uh, and of course, there's the Live at Hollywood Bowl, which has been remastered. Um, and they were just unique experiences. Um, at that time, they were, they were pure magic. You were 11 when they went on the Ed Sullivan show for the first uh, time? I think it was about 13. So, oh, oh, I'm sorry, the Ed Sullivan show. Yes, I was 11. I was crowded around my grandmother's black and white TV. And uh, it was, for me, uh, an eye-opening experience. Like 72 or 73 million other people who were watching. And for a lot of people, it was their first foray into music. And a lot of those people decided to become musicians. You always hear interviews with people who are famous today who said they got their inspiration from that show, from the first Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, they probably sold a lot of guitars in that week afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was a great time. You went to, um, SUNY, was it SUNY Stony Brook at the time? or It was the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Now it's called Stony Brook University. It was a leading school in, in the sciences and math studies. Um, but I was interested in, in comedy and music and also you know, filmmaking. I thought I was going to be the next Francois Truffaut who made his first film at 29 years old, The 400 Blows. And uh, of course, later I found out that Orson Welles made his first movie, Citizen Kane, at the age of 25. Well, that was my lofty goal. I wound up taking a sort of a left turn in my career into television. I don't regret it, but at that time I expected to be a filmmaker. And because they didn't have a whole bunch of classes at Stony Brook, we did a show that was shown just to the students, shot on 16 millimeter film. And we used to sync up the soundtrack. It was an announcer soundtrack. I did most of the announcing. Uh, we showed it on the weekend movies so that a couple, of hundred, a couple of thousand people would see it. And always the greatest compliment was that people would show up for the newsreel and then leave if they didn't like the movie. Um, it, it sort of took on the... The persona of a show, of course, I worked on later, Saturday Night Live, it was mostly poking fun at campus life. And um, it was a lot of fun to work on. It continued for a total of eight years after I left. Um, so it had a legacy for a while. And of course, that was the early days of film classes, unless you were at NYU or, or uh, USC, where, where really film was a, a study. So I was able to get involved in that. And I also got involved in the radio station, WUSB, which is now Long Island's big FM station. Uh, at the time, it was still on campus only. And we broadcast to, I, I guess, tens of thousands of students. Um, but it was not what I'll call a real radio station by today's standards. At the same time, I kind of cut my, my teeth on editing audio there and and a lot of the skills I picked up there, I used in directing announcers later in my, my career. I have no regrets about any of that. It was a great time. What kind of radio show did you do? I had, I had a show called Hanging Out, which was primarily music of the day. And I would, and, and it was a great time to be in, in that scene. Um, from 1970 to 1974, it was just a wealth of great music that was released uh, during that period. We also were, 50 miles from uh, the Fillmore East on 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. And there was a rule about people who played the Fillmore East. They weren't allowed to play the next night anywhere within a 50-mile radius of the Fillmore East. However, Stony Brook, I said 50, it was actually 53 miles away from the Fillmore. So we were logically the next stop for many, many great bands uh, during 71, 72, actually through 74, there was a tremendous number of bands that came through uh, playing for very little amount of money. We had Jimi Hendrix play a student orientation one year 
on the steps of one of the dormitories. Uh, the, the Dead played there Halloween 1970. We had the Allman Brothers five times uh, as sort of a house warm-up band. Uh, in fact, one of Dwayne's last performances two weeks before he passed, Dwayne Allman, uh, played Stony Brook. Um, it was a great time to be in radio at Stony Brook and a great time to be at the school. Um, the school was still in the process of evolving and we didn't really have a lot of walkways. We were known to wear work boots and they were always covered with mud. So it had a very interesting vibe in those early days. Yeah, my wife's a graduate of Stony Brook. Oh. And now it's a really prestigious college. Very prestigious today. I think it's in the top 100 in U.S. News Report. I'm sorry. Let me just get rid of that. Um, and uh, and uh, it's known for its hospital. They have a massive hospital now that's quite the uh, quite quite the uh, teaching school. Uh, in addition to being Long Island's best hospital, you obviously lived on campus since you were from Manhattan. Well, I actually lived in Queens. I grew up in Kew Garden Hills, Queens, and one of my claims to fame was I lived down the block on 70th Road from Simon and Garfunkel, who were our little local neighborhood stars. Of course, they were worldwide stars at the time. Uh, but uh, they sort of came out of my neighborhood. A lot of people knew them well. I, I eventually used, in one of my schools, I used Arthur Garfunkel's dictionary. It was given to me to be used, and it was kind of amusing to see his name scrawled in there. Um, and, of course, you know, they, they made legacy music of their own, great music. So when you went to be um, for the page job, um, what made you make that decision? Well, I... Uh, I had a love for TV, I had a love for film, and um, I was looking for a job, really. I, I was one of the first interviews I had outside of graduating Stony Brook. And uh, I had taken the tour. In fact, um, one of the interesting things that happened on the tour when I took it was I stayed behind at WNBC Radio, and one of the uh, DJs at the time was Cousin Brucey, a, a New York legend, and he saw me standing out there and motioned for me to come in the studio. And I told him how I was involved in radio in college and all of that. And then he invited me to lunch. We go up to the cafeteria and uh, we sat and talked. What a nice guy he is. He's still out on the air, I believe, on Sirius. And uh, he was, he offered me, they, they always used to take care of him. They gave him sandwiches and what have you. Um, and uh, they always made sure his sandwiches were extra stuffed. So I remember him offering me half of his roast beef sandwich. And I was just struck by the kindness and, and the attention I received. And I said, I want to work here. So I went in and applied for a job and uh, got lucky enough to be hired as an NBC page and tour guide. And what are the responsibilities of a page? Well, there were two parts. There's the tour, which is about an hour and you lead the, uh, the visitors through all aspects of the world of broadcasting from the early days of radio through to, to the studios that were, where shows were being produced at the time. Um, one of the favorite parts of the tour was the sound effects booth, where you would go in and recreate the days of early radio uh, with everything from the sounds of rain and thunder and doors slamming and creaky doors and Coconuts making the sound of uh, horse hooves, just like in the Monty Python Life of Brian movie. And uh, we would put on little radio shows for our tours. And for me, it was a lot of fun because we got to turn the lights out. And then I played all these different characters. I come from the world of radio anyway. So it was a real joy to entertain these school kids, for example, with uh, sort of a, a story that I made up. Um, always fun to do. Uh, the other side of the job was assisting people in various departments. I got to work in the press department and understand how press releases worked and what have you. And, and part of that was the photography, which is another interest of mine. Um, and then I got to work with Sonny Fox, talk about going full circle, who was at the time vice president of children's television at NBC, and he was determining the Saturday morning uh, lineups. I got to work with him and get involved in uh, the programming uh, contracts and all, all the kind of stuff that goes along with being an assistant. 
Um, but of course, the crown jewel of it all was working on the shows. And among the shows that I worked on were To Tell the Truth and The Tomorrow Show and Bringing Audiences. And of course, Saturday Night Live, which was really the greatest experience of my early career, one of the highlights of my career. I got to be there for the first two seasons. I saw the show evolve. I saw these people go from unknowns uh, to uh, sort of the national zeitgeist. Whatever happened on Saturday night was the topic of water coolers all across America on Monday morning. And so I, I was smack dab in the middle of all of that. Um, and it was a great experience. I got to meet the writers. I know you've spoken with some of the writers of the show. We were all roughly the same age. They were a little older than me, although some were actually my age. Dan Aykroyd, for example, was exactly the same age as I am. And Lorraine. And, well, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't ask her. <laughs> you don't ask her she was a couple months younger than Dan, so. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and they were very nice. Um, I got to be friendly with Gilda, with Dan. Um, Gilda Radner, of course, who passed way too young, Dan Aykroyd. And John Belushi was friendly. He used to come down to the locker room to take a shower. In those early days, they lived in their office. Dan and John lived in their office. They weren't big stars yet. They didn't have a lot of money. And they were allowed to crash there. And so the pages had their own showers uh, in the locker room. They would come down there and take a shower. I mean, there were probably showers in various dressing rooms as well, but I think they felt more comfortable among people their own age. Um, and they were very friendly. Um, pretty much everyone was very friendly. I got to uh, be in the studio when uh, Dan Aykroyd brought in this new guy. Chevy had just left, and he said, hey, Ed, I want you to meet my friend Billy Murray. Billy's going to be on the show, so make sure you laugh uh, extra hard when he does his routines. And of course, Bill became the great star that he is today. Uh, he was always the life of the party. He was one of those guys that, you know, wherever he was, he, he, he made it his own space. And people loved him. People loved being around him. It was interesting. The first night of the show was actually, they did an extra rehearsal on Friday night. Normally what they would do is rehearsal on Saturday night, which would start around 7.30-ish. And then it would end roughly after they ran through all their bits and... They would take a break, and during the break, the producer, Lauren Michaels, would figure out how he wanted to order the show based on what reactions they got from people and what have you. So they would cut bits, they would rearrange bits, and then, of course, they'd go live at 11.30, no matter what happened. And in, in those days, it was still a very new idea. There had not been any live television uh, for many years. In fact, to put it into context, it was a time of... Uh, turmoil in the U.S. Uh, we were all rallying against Nixon and, and the war in Vietnam. And of course, Nixon had to resign in 1973 or four, I think four. 74. 73. Okay. No, August of 74. And then uh, General Ford was made president. And of course, you know, Chevy skewered General, uh, General Ford. Uh, and that actor I played Jimmy Carter. And, I got to work that that uh, convention, the Democratic Convention, 1976. It was in New York. Madison Square Garden. And that was a great experience as well. Um, I only have great things to say about my, my time at NBC. Okay, my, my grandfather worked in the um, U.S. mail office at uh, 30 Rock. Oh. For 35 years. Wow. Yeah, 1949 to 1984. And we were, when we were cleaning out his stuff, he had his stapler from from his office, and it was the NBC the Snake logo. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I still have that in my desk. How cool. Yeah, the logos evolved over the years. When I first started there, they went to that N, the famous N, that was uh, cost something like a million dollars to develop. And the joke is that Nebraska Public Television had developed the same N for $100. They paid some graphic designer to come up with it. And they wound up having, because Nebraska had it first, to pay off Nebraska Public Television in order to use the end. And they used it for a couple of years. They eventually put a peacock on top of the end, and then they phased out the end once again. Um, it was never a great logo. Uh, it, it always felt like it was kind of naked out there. It didn't have, it didn't have enough weight to be a logo. I mean, the CBSI is so 
powerful. And just the simple ABC in a circle is very powerful. But that end really didn't cut it. Um, and uh, eventually they phased it out. And the peacock came back. First, it was a very elaborate peacock. And then they've simplified the feathers, um, sort of closer to the original NBC color peacock when it came out. The reason I obsess over these things is I was involved in marketing and advertising for most of my career. And one of the things we, we look at carefully are logos and, and their impact. You got the job in July of 75, and that's actually the first meetings for Sarant Live took place right after the 4th of July of 1975. That's right. Uh, NBC had been running the Johnny Carson show reruns on Saturday night, and Johnny decided he was overexposed. And uh, they went to Dick Ebersole, who was VP of late night programming at the time, and said, can you come up with something new? And he touched base with Lauren Michaels, who was a uh, producer from Canada, to come up with an idea for a show. And the breakthrough idea was that it would be live, it would be an ensemble cast, and they would have evolving hosts, revolving hosts, different hosts every week, and also incorporate other things like the, there was a series in the first season of Jim Henson Muppets, sort of just as the just as the Muppets on Sesame Street were, were premiering, Jim came up with this sort of late night group of Muppets as well. And he was there with Frank Oz, who as many people know, was the voice of Yoda and operated Yoda in the early Star Wars movies, as well as Miss Piggy and some other characters. Uh, and they came up every week with their little crew and did a little Muppet show. We had films by people like Albert Brooks, a great comedian and director who eventually made a number of motion pictures, but this was his first full day into filmmaking. And we had a fellow called Gary Weiss, who wound up making the earliest films for uh, Saturday night commercials and vignettes and documentary style programs. Um, interestingly, I started to mention how they did a first rehearsal the first night of, of the show. Uh, on Friday night, they did a rehearsal with George Carlin. He did his whole bit, and, um, and then they cut a whole bunch of things. One of the people who was supposed to be on the show was a young comedian named Billy Crystal, who did his routine on Friday night and the dress rehearsal of Saturday night. And then they cut him for the air show. And he never appeared on the show again until he became a guest, uh, Saturday, not ready for time, not ready for primetime player, which was years later. And of course, you know, he excelled at that. Um, so he kind of had the last laugh at the end. It was, it was a tough decision. I, I know they had a lot of great talent they wanted to get on the show. Uh, Andy Kaufman was also there that first night. I believe Janice Ian and Billy Preston were the musical artists that night. Um, and it was, it was a weird show. It was still not really what it became, which was, uh, this, you know, tight, tightly scripted comedy skits and what have you. They were still trying to find a comedic voice in those early shows. In fact, it was really the show for the Christmas holidays with Candace Bergen, where they really found their voice. Um, it was tight. It was funny. There was no wasted bits on the show and you know the rest is history here we are almost 50 years later and the show is still going strong sure they have their peaks and valleys but it's the nature of the show you have to find the talent the talent has to be um, harnessed and developed and then they finally find their um their niche you told me the story about how you actually got to see the theme song being written Oh, right. So when I was uh, a page, we used to give the tours. And one of the things we did during that summer was uh, show people the Studio 8H. Now, 8H has a storied history. This is the biggest studio at 30 Rock. It's built in a way that's suspended so that the trains underneath Rockefeller Center will not create vibrations. It's on the eighth floor and the ninth floor of 30 Rock. This is 30 Rockefeller Center, if you don't know. And um, as part of the tour, we would bring people to this viewing window on the ninth floor. And one time when I was there, they were, there were four musicians in the room. Uh, one was Howard Shore, the great musical conductor and um, composer of soundtracks. And 
another was Paul Schaefer, who most people know from the Dave Letterman show, who was the pianist at the time. And I'll be honest, I don't remember the other two, but they were rehearsing the theme song for Saturday Night Live, which remains the same theme song they use today. So it was a very, uh, very unique experience hearing that. Of course, I explained to my tour what was going on, um, but that sort of seared in my memory as well. It's something that uh, I look back so fondly on because I may have been one of the first people to hear the theme. Um, of course, when the show went into production, um, Thursday was the day that they usually brought in the musical acts. So the musical acts would be rehearsing oftentimes when the tour walked by, and what a thrill to see so many great artists. Uh, if the artist was super famous, the curtains were drawn, and they usually wouldn't let anyone uh, see them because you have all kinds of people who take the pictures. This is, of course, long before the day of cell phones, but people had their little cameras with them, and they probably didn't want people uh, taking unauthorized photos at the time. He worked on uh, The Tomorrow Show. I did. Uh, I actually worked next to The Tomorrow Show. My my primary career at NBC was with WNBC Channel 4 in New York. And I got to work with um, the people who produced the show. Uh, Andy Friendly, uh, Rick Carson was a production assistant. Rick was the uh, son of Johnny Carson and uh, a, a um, couple of other people who worked on the show uh, would, would hang out every night in a bar down underneath the uh, 30 Rock Studios called Down Under. So I would go down there every night and kind of schmooze with them after the show. I eventually, as a page, I got to work on the show a bit. Uh, Tom was quite the character. He, uh, he um, had a very strong personality. Uh, you either loved him or you hated him. I kind of loved him. I thought it was great. I'm actually a big fan of his. I love it when a new episode pops up on YouTube. Um, yeah, one of the things I did, and I, I may have mentioned this to you, uh, when Dan Aykroyd decided to impersonate Tom, he uh, would uh, ask me, because he knew that I worked with Tom, um, what, how he held his cigarette and how he sat. And one of the things he would do is put his elbow up on, on his uh, seat and hold his cigarette high and sort of in a V position between his fingers. And, and, and he had certain body movements that I recreated for Dan. Dan being the great artist that he was, he just sort of copied them and made them uh, his own. Uh, he, uh, he was very funny as, as, as he kind of skewered Tom, but you know, it's all in good fun. Do you remember any particular directives about putting the younger people in the front so the cameras could get them? Well, yeah, that's kind of commonplace in television. They always try to put the, the people who look best on camera. They didn't have to be young, but they usually were. Usually for a show like Saturday Night Live, they want to attract a young audience. So people who are of a certain age are asked to sit towards the back or gently positioned to sit in the back. But every now and then you'll see a show where some older people are sitting in the front. They're probably producers or friends of producers who kind of get the VIP treatment. Um, I always I always notice that as well. You might have had a couple of people because I've um I've seen episodes aren't live and you'll see like Steven Spielberg was in the audience or James L. Brooks was in the audience when Lily Tomlin hosted. Did you did you recognize these people when they came in? Well, sure. I, I often worked on the ninth floor where the audience above the studio level would sit. And uh, Lauren Michaels would invite a host of people to see the show. And you could be standing there and all of a sudden Jack Nicholson is behind you watching the show, peeking around. Um, the most memorable one uh, for me personally was the night that Eric Idle was the host and Joe Cocker was the musical guest. And we had four seats taped off. Now they're called tape and holds in the industry. And generally you know who's going to sit in those seats. You write their name on, on the tape so that we knew when they came in we could effortlessly and graciously just sit them down. Well, that night there was no names on the tape, no one knew what they were for. Eric Idle starts his show, we're in the middle of a monologue, and Mick Jagger and Ron Wood and two female friends walk in with them. 
And uh, they, uh, when they came in, now this is 1976, it's, uh, I believe, October-ish, maybe november mm -hmm. And um, they were couldn't have been hotter. They were the hottest band alive. The Beatles had stopped performing and stopped making music together in 1970. We had we had other bands of great great note at that time, but the Stones were easily at the top of the heap. And when they walked in, you could feel the energy change in the, in the room. You could feel this wave of excitement just cover the audience, encapsulate the audience. And of course, everyone's buzzing. Well, I see them and I figure out, you'd have to be a brain surgeon to figure out that they were supposed to sit in those seats. I put them in the seats. And no sooner do they sit down, but they get up again. And I asked them, how can I help you guys? They said, well, we'd like to go to the loo. And uh, happening, I happened to be in Paris that summer. So I knew what a loo was because being an American is not a common phrase. And the, the NBC men's room was about 35, 40 feet down the hall. It was a bit of a walk. So I take Mick Jagger and Ron Wood, and I'm walking down the hall with them. And I say, how do you like the show? And they're, oh, very lovely. Now remember, I'm wearing my NBC uniform. And all. And I say, you know, you guys ought to be on the show. And uh, of course they were. Now, I don't think I really had anything to do with it. But they were really open to the idea. And we took them to the men's room. As soon as we get to the men's room, people are absolutely freaked out. And they all leave, probably because they felt like the Stones needed their privacy. And we go to the bathroom and do what we need to do. I didn't look down. And uh, then um, pretty much walk them back to their seats. Later, they stand up again. Now they're with their women. And uh, by the way, this is when um, I guess uh, Mick and uh, Bianca Jago were estranged. Estranged. So he, at that time, he had written Miss You for her. But meanwhile, he wasn't missing her too much. <laughs> he was with a couple of women. Anyway, we take him down to Joe Cocker's dressing room. And finally, a very burly security guard from Roxanne shows up to take it from there. They eventually escorted them out. The secret elevator that was built for Arturo Toscanini uh, when he led the NBC Symphony Orchestra on radio during the 1930s. Uh, he was the sort of big jabber of his day. Of course, it was classical music. But uh, he was very, um, very famous, and he couldn't stand the publicity of being mobbed in public, so they built him a secret elevator. And that same elevator took Mick and, and Ron down to the catacombs of Rock Center, and they snuck him out, probably through the Rockefeller Center. Garage. How small is that elevator? Is it if it's built for one person? It's very small. I've actually never been in it. In fact, I only I did an interview recently where a guy told me where it was. I had never seen it. It's it's so secret that even the painters didn't know where it was. But now I know where it is. It looks like a broom closet, and yet there's an elevator inside. That's why it's secret. So you also did work for NBC News. Well, I wouldn't say I worked for NBC News. I I made promos for NBC News. I made promos for a lot of news shows. Uh, the nature of news shows are that you have to scramble to uh, get footage and have the, get the story straight because what you're doing basically is a tease for the show that night. Actually, a better example would be Eyewitness News, which is WABC here in New York, where I would learn, the example of that is, I would learn what the story I need to promote or stories I need to promote in the news meeting at 9 a.m. And then I would scramble to get footage it wasn't always footage of that story. It could be generic footage or file footage or some improvisation of footage that related to the story. And, for example, school children. If it was a school children's story, there's a lot of out-of-focus school children or, you know, from the neck down pictures of school children. That sort of thing was used pretty commonly and still is today. Um, we would write the story, get it approved. We would go through the news director. Then it would go to legal and if there were any changes, we would make the changes. And then uh, approximately 1, 1.30 in the afternoon, we would have the news anchor. And at Channel 7, it was Roger Grimsby or Bill Butel, uh, who were the big stars of that time. And they would read the copy. Sometimes they'd only give you one take. And you might want a new another take because it was too long or too short. Um, and they would sometimes oblige and sometimes they wouldn't. 
Um, the nature of promotion is that you're usually dealing with day of situations. So you have to really be able to think on your feet and not get too stressed out. Um, and from there, we would take their audio and create a promo. And we would have it on the air, usually around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, to promote that night show. During the general hospital. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was a big, it was a very quick turnaround. And somebody is still there doing those promos today because they still run them at all the local news stations in the country. Um, some are more sophisticated than others in the big markets like New York and L.A. and Chicago and Philadelphia and Miami. There's probably a news producer doing what I used to do back in the day. Um, it's a high-stress situation, not for the faint of heart, um, but it's kind of fun. And it's fun knowing that the work that you walked in in the morning where you knew nothing, you made something out of nothing. Usually these were 15-second promos. And so they weren't that long, but they were long enough that you had to fill the time with quite a bit of information. And it had to be legitimate. It had to be, had to be accurate, truthful, newsworthy, and also had some promotional hook so that people wanted to tune in to see it. Did you, were you ever there when they did the SNL Thursday promos? Uh, yeah, sure. In fact, when I worked at Channel 4 WNBC, we had close circuit television. Um, and I was there for about six years after my page, my time as a page. And we had closed circuit television. I could see all, all the promos being recorded for all the shows. And it was always fun to watch and uh, see how the talent would respond. And, if there were moments where after they did their promo, they would goof around. They knew they were on camera, so they were probably more conservative than not. Like no one ever threw a tantrum or anything. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to see all that stuff and be behind the scenes. Um, do I miss those days? Sure. Do I, do I think I would be doing it today? Probably not. I, I don't know if I'd have the tenacity to be so committed to something that you really every moment of your life is dedicated to it until it's over. And, you know, in the cases of other promos, you might be working until two, three in the morning, especially if they had a show change where I worked on a lot of syndicated shows. I know you wanted to ask me about Joan Rivers. And sometimes guests would cancel out for the recording the next day and we would have to reconstruct a promo from scratch. Even after we finished all the promos, we'd start all over again. And so sometimes you work late into the night, and that happened quite often. It's the nefarious nature. It's the it's the mercurial nature of television, where things change on a dime. You got to be ready for it. You mentioned uh, taking the Rolling Stones to the bathroom. Did you have any other encounters with? Ah, you've, you've done your homework. Yes, I mean I, I took a number of celebrities to the restrooms, um, but but the one that stands out is when I worked on. Uh, Channel 4 is live at 5. And uh, one of the uh, shows, one of the uh, the guests in 1976 was Sean Connery, our favorite James Bond. And he was promoting a movie called Robin and Marion with Audrey Hepburn. Well, we're, he comes to the studio about 10 minutes to 5, which is pretty late. Um, I guess they threw him in makeup. And then as the page who stood at the live at 5 doors, I'm supposed to take him to the restaurant. And he, would, he wouldn't go on exactly at 5 o'clock, but he had to be camera ready and ready to go at 5. Well, we walked to this, the restroom, and um, the locks on the NBC restrooms were from the original construction of Rock Center. I'm sure they replaced some of them uh, at that time, but the particular lock next to the Live 5 studio was an old crickety lock. It was difficult to open. And for some reason, my key would not open this lock. I could not get this lock open no matter how hard I tried. And I was going to say to him, I was tempted to say to him, well, look, you're James Bond, you figure it out. And uh, the look on his face, do you remember in the movie uh, Goldfinger when he's strapped down to the table and uh, Goldfinger has this laser pointed at his crotch and he says, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. If you look at the look on his face, that was the look Sean Connery had. At the time, we were trying to get into the restroom. Now, the good news is that somebody left the restroom. Somebody opened the door for us. 
and there was a happy ending. He managed to do his thing, get to the doors, and all was well. But it was one of those moments that you remember, especially when one of your heroes is is not in the most heroic mode. You stayed at NBC or WNBC until 1983? Yeah, um, I was I was the... Uh, Assistant manager of promotion by the time I left. I started as a print coordinator. I used to deal with net, network advertising and promotion and, and get ads approved by the network people because they had to conform to uh, the, the, the network look and feel. Maybe we would call that branding. And uh, I evolved from there to become a writer-producer. And eventually, when one of the managers left, I became acting manager of the department and they brought in a more seasoned person to be the manager. And about that time, I got a call about a new cable channel called Satellite News Channel, which was a co-venture of Group W, Westinghouse, ABC. And ABC um, uh, built a studio in Stanford, Connecticut. And apparently, they, want, they had a promotion manager, but he got cold feet the week before the show. And... Uh, I was called up to be the promotion manager at that point, given my experience in broadcast television. So I went up there and did the job and uh, stayed there for the entire time selling his channel was around, which turns out was only a year and a half. It eventually got purchased by Ted Turner, and he folded into headline news, CNN headline news. Kind of a shock to everybody, including the president of Satellite News Channel, he found out about it by reading about the merger in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so they kept this real quiet at Group W, and, and he didn't even know about it. Um, but it was a great experience. It was a 24-hour live news channel uh, that, re, that updated the news every 22 minutes. Their, their um, motto was, you give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. And in New York City, it was a similar model with WINS News Radio. Uh, after it was a rock station, it became all news. It was, you give us 18 minutes, we'll give you the world. It was the same model, but now for television. And of course, Headline News, uh, their model is, is uh, they recycle the news every 30 minutes. And oftentimes, if you look carefully, you can tell it's been recorded and played back. But this was all live all the time. We had 25 affiliates around the country broadcast stations feeding us news stories, local news stories. In fact, every half hour, we'd cut away for a five-minute local report as well. So it was really pretty in-depth. Um, it was great to work on that. And then you worked, which came first, Oprah or Nickelodeon? Well, uh, they were similar times. They were in the late 80s, early 90s. I got to work with uh, the people who produced the Oprah show, um, went up to Chicago, and I will say that the world of promotion is one where people will get a day to make a promo, and usually you have to do what they call cut-downs. 22nd, first is a 30-second promo, a 20-second promo, a 15-second promo, a 10-second promo, and then a five-second ID, they called it. And what you would do is take the same story and find a way to cut it down and still keep it meaningful. Well, at Oprah, you would actually get an entire week to build a set of these promos. You also had to do a show open, which was the promo that leads into the show. It's about a minute. And I was very impressed with, with Oprah and Harpo Productions because they really allowed the producers to take the time to get everything they needed. It wasn't a rush job the way we would do with uh, most shows. Most shows would give you only the one day. Or in the case, for example, of a syndicated show, you would wind up producing a week's worth of shows in one day. Now, you had a whole week to write them, but they would all be produced in one day. Um, so I, I give kudos to Oprah, and, and she herself was very nice. I always had a good experience working with her. Um, just around the same time, I was invited to make promos for Nick at Night. And my other favorite promo experience was working on this show, be, uh, on Nick, Nick and Night shows because they didn't make traditional promos. They would make promos that uh, would um, relate to the characters on the show, 
but not necessarily promote the show. For example, for The Odd Couple, we did a promo about all of the things that archaeologists found inside Oscar Madison's bed. And uh, I worked with a very talented writer named Laura Belgray, who wrote that promo. Another talented writer worked with his name, Bruce Bernstein. And of course, I wrote some myself. And I would produce these promos, taking the time to look at as many episodes as I needed to. For a Lucy Marathon, I love Lucy Marathon, I screened 80 different shows to find sound bites. And we created a whole week worth of um, what we'll call interstitial uh, programming. And in addition to very funny promos, promos that weren't specific to an episode, but more generic. Um, this is how they did business back then. Uh, it was a very interesting time to be with Nick and I. I think it's become much more ordinary today, where we just have promos for shows. Um, they're not as creative, uh, I'm sorry to say, but it's, it's a whole different time in television. The whole landscape has changed, and they, can't, they simply just can't afford to spend the time and money on these very creative promos. I give props to uh, Tom Hill, who ran that department at the time, and he was uh, a real uh, innovator, uh, to say the least. Yeah, they were great, great promos. Um, probably one of the great, if you recall, probably a little before your time, but the Patty Duke show. I was just going to say the Patty Duke show. Was, was a show where you saw um, Patty Duke play Cousins, and in the world of, at the time, unsophisticated trick photography, they would shoot over the shoulder of someone to be one cousin while you saw, saw Patty on camera. So Nick and I, I didn't, I didn't produce this, but they did a whole series of promos around the back of Patty Duke's head because you always had that over the shoulder shot with the back of her head. And I mean, that's brilliant. It's brilliant, brilliant thinking. Um, and they also had the, the two Chuck Cunninghams from Happy Days. Oh, did Rich. Oh yeah, Chuck, right, right, right. They had two brothers. Two actors who played the brother. We did a whole series of promos around the, the different, um, oh, I forgot what they called them, but they were basically um, errors in the shows. We would highlight those, and uh, it was very funny to work on those because somebody would see a, a stagehand walking through the set, or there'd be, um, you can tell there's a dummy in a phone booth. I know I did one promo for I Dream of Jeannie, where you see Major Healy in a phone booth making a phone call, and then in a wide shot, you see the phone booth get knocked to the ground. And then we would zoom in on the on the phone booth, and you would see it's actually just a dummy in there. It's very obviously a dummy in there. Um, that particular promo wound up in a movie um, that uh, Jack Nicholson starred in, um, which again, I forgot the name of. Uh, because uh, the producer, Jim Burroughs, the director of the movie, liked it so much that he included it in, he has Jack Nicholson watching what turned out to be my promo. And much to my surprise, I was watching the movie in the theater when I saw it, and I just sort of freaked out, hey, there's my promo. As good as it gets. Oh, that's right. It's good. Sorry. Yeah. Good. It's good. <laughs> Jim Jones-O Brooks and Jack Nicholson together. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Great movie. When did you work for Broadway video? Well, as um, after working at WNBC, I worked with, uh, it was a company uh, called Fox Lorber that helped syndicate uh, the, the original show called, it was called Sunday Night, NBC's Sunday Night. And it was a syndicated show produced by Lauren Michaels. It was a music show. And the two hosts were Jules Holland and David Sanborn, Jules Holland is a British artist who uh, had his own um, talk show in, in England uh, and they co-hosted the show and they put all these crazy matchups together. And I was brought in as a promo guy to work the stations that carried the shows to help them promote the shows. We do special promos for them. We recorded uh, various promos that were generic that could be used by any station. And we encouraged them to work with their local radio because it was a music show. We were able to um, create some excitement around some of the people on the show, you know, including people like um, Eric Clapton. Um, my favorite moment from the show was when I got there early one day and I walk in the studio. 
Who's on stage? Miles Davis. Just Miles Davis and the stage man and me. And he was working his way through the song. He was feeling the vibes in the studio. To this day, I remember the chills I got watching Miles Davis play. Um, all for me, really, uh, as a stage manager. It was just a great moment. Uh, but the show will pair up all these different, very different artists uh, that made music, beautiful music together. It's a great film to work on. It really never took off because it never confirmed the time period. It was later renamed Nicola Presents Night Music, so it could run on other nights besides Sunday nights. In fact, there were substations already running it on Friday nights, which is probably where it belonged. Because uh, Sunday night is kind of a school night. So then we, we go to bed early and get ready for the next night. So it never really took off, but there online, you can find these um, videos on YouTube for, for the show, and they're really worth checking out. And he was very nice. I mean, the good news is most of the people I work with. Was, going back for one second, was there any special uh rules when ron nesson hosted because there's there secret service press more press than yeah, usual with service there and um i remember that the security was much tighter than usual as a page i wasn't vetted because i was already on staff but they were vetting people they were searching people they wanted to make sure that all was well uh and the show would go off without a hitch and if i'm not mistaken I could be wrong about this, but I remember that the cold open for that show involved uh, Gerald Ford, the president, yeah. saying, Live from New York, it's Saturday Night Live. And, or, Live from New York, it's Saturday Night. Just, just to differentiate there, I'm, I'm digressing. The original name of the show was NBC Saturday Night, because Howard show, Howard Cosell had a show on ABC called uh, Saturday Night Live. And when that show got canceled, they renamed this show Saturday Night Live. Um, so I remember seeing uh, a video of Gerald Ford saying, um, live from New York at Saturday night. And uh, it was the Ron Nesson show. I said, what a coup, you know, you get the President of the United States to be involved in the show and actually, um, you know, take, take, sort of take the funny path. The special guest on that episode was Billy Crystal. They made it up to him by having him appear in that episode. Yeah. Well, I, I don't remember that specifically. But, of course, that whole season with Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest and uh, right. other artists were, was just great. I think it was the fifth season? It was ninth. No, tenth. Was it? Okay. Uh, you know, I've been watching the show since it started. And it's right. a blur at this point. You know, I mean, I've seen almost, I could say I, Honestly, almost seen every episode of Saturday Night Live just because it's part of my DNA. You know, when they, they the, the whole cast would leave and they have a complete turnover and they start all over again. The first couple of shows, sometimes the first whole season is kind of weak. But each each group gains its momentum. And you think about, you know, how, how they've managed to um, stay on. You know, stay relevant over all the years that it's been around. I mean, the idea of a show that's been on for forty something years, forty six, seven years, um, and still be popular. Um, I mean, of course, there are audiences that don't watch it. Uh, they've written off television in general. That's another discussion for another time. But um, I think people still enjoy watching the show, and because it is the only live show of its time. It remains unique in, in television history. There are some weeks where it's the highest rated show on television. Yeah, I believe that. Because it's the only show that you, I mean, you can watch it the next day, but you you feel, it feels special to watch it live. Sure, sure. And I was lucky enough to go twice to uh, yeah, be in the studio. It's a wonderful experience. I'll tell you one more story about tickets. So when George Harrison was going to perform with Paul Simon since 1976. Um, they decided not to do it live because they felt that there would be too much pandemonium, too many security issues. Of course, the Beatles were still a possibility of reunited and having George Harrison in the room would just create a stir. So they decided to record it the day of the rehearsals. Basically, the bands would rehearse on Thursdays. And they decided to record it Thursday night. 
Now, normally, guest relations would endeavor to fill the audience. That particular night, uh, Lauren Michaels decided, you know, I know enough people, I can fill the 300 seats. And so he did, but he actually was almost 200 seats shy. It was about 100 plus people there. And it's almost six o'clock, and I think we're taping at 6.30 or 7 o'clock. And there are a few pages still on staff. Myself and one other page are still in uniform. And they come to us and say, Ed, we need you to help try to fill the audience. So I go out in my NBC page uniform, and I'm holding up actual tickets in my hand and running around the six-block radius of Rockville Center saying, free tickets to see Paul Simon and George Harrison right now. And believe it or not, I only got a handful of people to come to the show because no one was prepared. They were all going someplace or going home or had other plans or going to a show. And they were all regretful. Oh, I can't make it. But it was kind of stunning that um, we couldn't find an audience for the show. Um, what they wound up doing was recording the songs they did, I believe, Homeward Down, Homeward Bound, and Here Comes the Sun. And they recorded them three different times. And they would reposition the audience in different sections of 8H so it looked like there was a full audience in the room. Now, if you go back and look at the recording, they wound up using mostly close-ups and there's some kind of a, a soft-focus filter on the imagery. So you really couldn't tell that the place was almost empty or three quarters, two quarters, sorry, two thirds empty when um, they recorded it. Uh, but uh, it's a little known fact and uh, I'm sure they wouldn't mind if we kept it a little, little but here it is. Uh, so here was the time when I went out to find an audience for Paul Simon and George Harrison and failed miserably because no one was prepared to do it. They also did the opening of the show on tape. If you may remember, I think the season before, um, Lauren Michaels went on camera and made a public appeal to the Beatles to reunite. And he shows a check. He picks up a check. He says, I have a check here for $3,000. And, you know, if you want, you could pay Ringo a little less. And if you come down to the studio right now. And so... Um, the joke that they were doing in the cold open was that George thought he was going to get paid $3,000. And uh, Lauren said, no, that's only if you have four Beatles. You're not getting $3,000. So the whole bit was a skirmish over how he was going to be paid for the work. It was pretty funny because if you knew about right. the legendary check off. And, and the sidebar to that story is that Paul and John were actually at the Dakota. John, John and Paul thought it would be a real laugh to just take a cab down there and show up. Um, but I guess they got lazy and missed it. They decided, you know, too much effort, too much commotion. But they actually got a big kick out of seeing Lauren Michaels offer them the check and uh, decided they were going to go down and ultimately change their mind. But right. how funny is that? What coincidence? Yeah, I mean, they did, they did very creative and funny stuff. What I think is the... The, the major conceit of Saturday Night Live is they try, try to be original, that everything is a new idea. Now, I will say, once they find an idea that works, mm -hmm. they would over and over again, they beat it into the ground. Sometimes that's funny, sometimes it's not. But the original conceit is that they want to be original. They want unique comedy, never been done before. So sometimes that works really well, and sometimes it doesn't. I also wonder in the seventies, when you didn't have uh, VCRs and you didn't have, were they, and maybe you didn't watch every episode. Did you see the things being run into the ground, or or maybe you saw Emily Lotella four or five times instead of like the twenty eight times they did it. What have you? Um, I mean, the average viewer. Yeah, the average viewer, uh, you know, I think they, the bet was that people didn't see all the shows. And so right. they got away with repeating bits. Um, but, you know, some of those some of those bits became legendary. You know, John Lovitz and you know, his liar character, yeah, that's a ticket. 
comes to mind. Um, so many characters that uh, we saw over and over again. There's a value to it, and then there are times when it becomes too much. That's all I'll say. But I, I applaud the originality of the show. Totally agree. I just want to ask you uh, one other question. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I remember I went when I went I went to England and I saw Jeremy Kyle's show in England, and when they brought it over to America, uh, you worked on that show. I did. Um, I was brought in on the second season to make promos. It's a very challenging show to work on for a number of reasons. Jeremy himself was a class act. Um, I understood that he had some affiliation with the royal family. I think his father worked for them. Um, he actually had a psychologist on the show that would help uh, offer sort of instant therapy to the people on the show. The nature of the show was uh, it was the kind of dysfunctional people that used to be on Jerry Spring. These were families with um, serious problems, that's how I'll put it. Um, for, as a promo producer, what made it difficult was that they let the audience, they let the guests go anywhere in the studio, behind the scenes, and actually onto the street, onto 57th Street here in New York, so that whatever argument they were having would continue on. And there was, it was great television, but if you try to tell that story in 30 seconds or 15 seconds, very challenging to show continuity. It's one minute they're in one part of the building and the next minute they're in another. Um, the show simply didn't garner the ratings that they wanted. I believe they were actually up against Jerry Springer, who was white hot at the time. And so people turned to Jerry. Um, he was much more successful in England, and uh, he's probably still doing something. I don't know what he's doing today. Um, I will put in a plug here for Joan Rivers because, in my view, Joan was the nicest person I ever worked with. You know, she had that caustic personality and stage act, and she would make fun of people in kind of a hostile, almost mean-spirited way. But it was all in good fun, not unlike Don Rickles, who was also a sweetheart. I never actually had to work. He was known to be a sweetheart. Right. Uh, Joan was one of the most generous and caring people I would ever meet. After she passed, we had a reunion of the uh, show cast of the staff and people who worked on the show. And I learned a lot of things about Joan, how generous she was, how when some of the people involved, their family had uh, issues with cancer, she would pick up the, the hospital costs for people. She... Um, she always made people feel very comfortable and relaxed around her. Um, when my mom came to see the show, uh, I mentioned it casually to her. I used to work in the recording booth with her, and I said, hey, my mom's coming. Oh, she said, oh, bring her backstage. I'd love to meet her. I was, like, shocked because, you know, most, most talk show hosts have no time for people. So I brought her back there, and the first thing out of her mouth was, you have a very talented son. And ever since that day, I've used that thinking when I meet someone's parents. I always see something. And she was just very generous with the time. She spent a couple of minutes with my mom. And then she went out and did another show. So the fact that she was so kind was always stuck with me. And I always have a special place in that. And of course, she was a brilliant comedian. Um, if you've seen any of the specials or this documentary about her, you see she kept a copious file of notes on every kind of joke you can imagine. A big file cabinet full of index cards with jokes on them. Um, and she was so fast. Sometimes I'd write a promo and within seconds she would come up with a funnier way to say something. And it always, it always made me feel great to know that I was collaborating with such a master. And you think about in, endurance. I mean, my dad used to watch her on Ed Sullivan in the 60s when she was sort of the housewife comedian. She, she made her way through so many trials and tribulations, first of all, as, as a female comic, and then with the suicide of her husband. And, you know, she stayed relevant right to the very end. A 50-year career. Yeah. And uh, I, I greatly admire her. She was, she was easily my favorite boss. I've spoken to people who wrote for her late show, or late night show, mm -hmm. and wrote jokes for her, and they all say that some of them, like, helped, she helped them get their start in show business. And yeah. She was very good to write her writers as well. Yeah, she was a classic, no question. 
It's funny because that's not the stage persona you see when you see her act. She's usually sort of brusque and, and a little mean-spirited, but playfully mean-spirited. She was, she was just the kindest lady. She was the, uh, when, when she would have parties, she made a point of making sure everybody had enough to eat. She was the one walking around, did you get something to eat? You know, and it's so funny that, you know, the host of the show is being the one to be the real host of the party. You're just that kind of woman. I admire her for that. It was like uh, when they used to say Jack Benny used to have to really over tip at yeah. the restaurant. Yeah, he, his, his whole act was being cheap. Right. Which in real life, he was very, very cheap. I did meet George Burns. Oh, I love George Burns. He was the host of uh, Saturday Night One Weekend. I was working in publicity promotion for Channel 4, and I was asked to create a series. And, um, there was a big water shortage in New York at one point in the 70s, and uh, we were asked to create a bunch of promos to um, help people, remind people to save water. And we wanted to get George Burns to do one of these promos. Well, we gave him a box of these very famous Cuban cigars. He was very gracious with me. He shook my hand. I remember he had a very fleshy, meaty hand. But he turned down the opportunity. I mean, he was busy recording Saturday Night Live and just didn't want to get involved. Um, but it was a great thrill for me to meet one of the great legends of radio and show business in general. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Sure. You'll let me know when it airs. I will. All those people who are still listening, <laughs> you're listening. I hope you enjoyed our little chat. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day.